This is Barry Simon, and welcome to the podcast edition of Equal Time for Free Thought. Equal Time for Free Thought was broadcast on WBAI New York from June of 2002 through March of 2020, airing just over 600 programs. You can find our archives, which will include these podcast programs, at equaltimeforfreethought.org. Equal Time for Free Thought is an interview-focused program which addresses some of today's most pressing issues through the lens of scientific naturalism and secular humanism. We cover philosophy, science, politics, economics, education, and much more. It is our hope that these programs foster curiosity, critical thinking, and a better understanding of human nature towards a healthy new society we so desperately need to create. In our society, violence is increasing. Along with the violence, not incidentally, we have a growing mental health crisis, which is still not getting the attention, understanding, and funding needed to help those adversely affected by this profoundly sick society. While there are several ways we can understand what is happening, learning about human nature and how we evolved to be can help us have a better grasp on what we can do and where we might go. In 1994, psychiatrist and neuroscientist Stephen Porges introduced the polyvagal theory. This theory has allowed us to understand more about how the brain and the rest of the body works and what happens when things go wrong and why. Stephen Porges is a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also currently director of the Kinsey Institute Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at Indiana University, Bloomington. He was previously a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago, where he was director of the Brain Body Center at the College of Medicine and at the University of Maryland. Welcome to Equal Time for Free Thought, Steve Porges. Well, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to an interesting discussion. So in 1994, we'll get right into it, you introduced the polyvagal theory to the world of psychology. Whether it be practitioners or patients, just for our, own, our listeners to get a little introduction, what is the vagus nerve for which this theory was named and what does it do? The vagus nerve is basically our bidirectional neural highway, superhighway, connecting our bodily organs with our brain. And it's extremely important to realize that it's literally a surveillance system monitoring how our organs are functioning, sends that information to our brainstem, and then based upon the brainstem's interpretation, we are either feeling safe or feel under states of defense. And then when we're safe, we can go and do social things and utilize higher brain structures. Basically, the vagus is really this connection that enables thoughts and actions to affect our physiology and in return, our physiology to send information to our brainstem affecting our thoughts and actions. And for those even less um, Hmm. understanding of neuroscience, it starts in the actual brain 
we get locked into this parallelism model or right. uh, which is really limiting in in terms of understanding the dynamics of what a living organism does so you can't say is this top down or bottom up or right. where does it start it's connections it's nor it which have feedback loops and that is the critical term that the feedback loops themselves have emergent properties meaning that we feel good under certain states and we feel pretty bad under other physiological states and it's reflected not merely in our thoughts and feelings, but also in the actual organs themselves. And so it's functionally we have to re-educate ourselves not to think about a mental brain and a physiological periphery. We have to think about an integrated nervous system, a bidirectional system that's brain-body uh, coordinated. And we can also say a mind-body because when we have thoughts, they affect our physiology as well. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. We've heard that you didn't, quote unquote, create the polyvagal theory. Please share a few minutes of the beginning of your story with us. Well, I, I mean, in terms of the theory, yes, the articulation is mine. Okay. I kind of feel that it's really uh, vested in literally, as they say on Google Scholar, on the shoulders of giants, meaning that mm-hmm. the, the history of science, the history of inquiry and the history of humanity provided lot of the clues and even came up with a different language so when we go back and we look at like the term the concepts in yoga they could be explained by polyvagal theory language so it's a language of contemporary neuroscience but the concepts are really embedded in really ancient traditions and in basic science so uh, the question is, what do you take credit for? Credit for the name, not for, in a sense, the information. It's extraction of the information that led to the theory. Right. Uh, most of my experience uh, doing the radio show and now the podcast with neuroscience and neuroscientists have been mostly focused on understanding consciousness. You know, yeah. the, all those theories about um, what is consciousness, how did it arrive, and there's a million different, for every person there's another theory. So I'm not as familiar with, with this aspect, which is why it's fascinating to me. For a long time, psychology has been based on observations and differing theorists' ideas. Psychiatry has, for a long time, primarily been about pharmaceuticals. I always thought we needed a better understanding of the brain, beyond basic chemistry, perhaps, to really understand human behavior. So how do you see the role of neuroscience in helping people understand themselves as they seek greater health? Well, as we study uh, neuroscience of our physiology, of our nervous system, we start to understand certain things. We understand that the actual evolution of the brain and of our nervous system followed a phylogenetic, an evolutionary journey, and that journey led to the ability of social mammals to calm each other's bodies and to create feelings of safety that enabled civilization to emerge, trust in another. The issue of being cortical-centric or brain-centric or cognitive-centric is that we miss the foundational survival mechanisms upon which our big brain is really sitting. And those foundational neural pathways are really linked to survival, meaning they react under threat and they change who we are. When we're under threat, 
we don't we're not a great problem solving organism we're very proximal and defensive in protecting ourselves so we lose humanity and we lose connectedness with with others it's the beauty of our evolutionary journey that our sociality functioned as a neuromodulator functionally calming our nervous system and enabling us to grow both intellectually socially and even spiritually for disclosure i was diagnosed many years ago with panic disorder so I learned all about fight and flight and all that. And I know that's part of, of understanding the, the Vegas theory. Mm. And in fact, I was speaking with, I don't mean to name drop, but with uh, psych- social psychologist Darsha Narvaez, who, mm. it, who first introduced me to the idea of Vegas theory, you know, uh, Ve- the Vegas nerve in the first place. Mm. And I had told her on the air my story about when I was an infant that I was very sick. Like I was in a hospital two different times within the fifth month and the sixth month or something like that my parents told me i was on tubes and blindfolds mm. and i had high fevers and family you know couldn't touch me or hold me all the stuff that human beings need mm. so i asked her after telling her that so do you think i have some you know vegas stress response issues she says of course you do <laughs> um which has led this it's continued into my you know into my life well you see what we tend to do is take those narratives and create a causal model, which is mm-hmm. what you did. Uh, Polyvagal theory doesn't lead to that endpoint. It says, wow, you experience adversity and your nervous system adjusted to that. But it doesn't mean you're rewired for uh, to be chronically in an adverse state. It means mm-hmm. that you had an acute reaction and your nervous system literally got stuck because it hadn't been convinced that you were in a safe world. So treatment and interventions are really learning how to communicate with those survival-based brainstem structures that move us in and out of states of threat. So talking about panic attacks and anxiety disorders, it's really a reflection that your nervous system had been retuned. And that's the powerful word, retuned, to be in a chronic state of threat. And what we do within both psychology and in psychiatry is we take these physiological states and we don't focus on those states. We focus on what those states produce or allow to emerge in terms of the higher brain structure. So we start thinking in terms of anxiety, thought disorders, panic. We come up with complex terminology, including Mm -hmm. some that are uh, names of pathologies, but they all rest on this brainstem area of that determines and sets the stage, literally a neural platform. Are you safe and comfortable in the world or are you in a state of threat? And if you're under a state of threat, how do you convince the body, those brainstem areas, to give up their threat reactions? It's not a voluntary. We have to move into another conceptualization of our nervous system. We live in this kind of It's a pragmatic world that doesn't make any sense. We believe that if we feel bad, it's our it's our responsibility to feel better. Mm -hmm. So we start focusing on intentionality without an appreciation of through the more reflexive level reactions of our body and trying to be informed about how we can intervene in terms of understanding those reflexes and basically learning how to navigate in our body in the world that we're in. Yeah, and I want to learn definitely more about that, and I'll ask that later on. So I'm assuming that the solutions back then, this was in the 80s, 1980s, um, was pharmaceuticals, was, you know, um, the benzos, you know, Ativan, Xanax, and stuff like that, or an antidepressant. 
which some people even in the world of psychiatry have said doesn't really do a whole lot mm-hmm. unless you're doing something else. And when I read a Johan Harry's book about lost connections, it made me think, okay, so this is really about like what you're saying, connections, the healthiest, the most natural antidepressants are each other and our yeah. connections with each other rather than, you know, what Pfizer or some other company comes up with. Maybe we're moving in that direction, even though there's so much money in pharmaceuticals, it gets it becomes difficult. Well, let's kind of uh, step back for a moment and yeah. understand the world that we're in. And we're in a very threatening world, a world in which it's not safe to give up our defenses. Right. So we have to be first respectful of our nervous system's ability to literally keep us alive and keep us safe. And most people who have these anxiety disorders or panic issues get very angry at their body for failing them in situations in which they in, would like to intentionally engage and have control over. And the body just says something else. So the first part is we have to be uh, aware of what our body's trying to say to us. It's saying that we're under a state of threat. And we have to honor that and say, how can we give the cues of safety that enable our body to give up that hypervigilance and that defensiveness? It's not a hard thing, but in our society, we look for mechanistic ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so we look for drugs or addictions. You know, they're, uh, it's all there. So the physiological state that you're describing works well for a person who may be motivated and continually works hard or a workaholic. Uh, because they are basically always triggered to be mobilized. And then if they're in situations where they don't have anything to do, they may really, in a sense, get very upset. Their body doesn't know to how to interpret and use cues of relaxation and safety. So there's really a learning process that goes through, one, being aware of your body, and this is actually through the sensations of your body called interoception that are really going up a lot of them go up to the sensory part of the vagus. The vagus nerve is this big nerve. It's a fat nerve relative to nerves. And 80% of its fibers are sensory. It's a surveillance system. It's telling you how your body is feeling. And then the brain has to make sense of that. But with people with anxiety disorders and threats and adversity history, their system has been retuned to be hypervigilant for threat cues and to right. be biased towards threat and not towards safety. Like if you've gone through certain kinds of trauma and that your brain has been retuned or the vagus nerve has been mm. retuned and the stress response isn't working, then you're always on defensive mode. Yeah. mode. You're always in protection mode. And then if you get triggered and thoughts or memories or what we used to call flashbacks or whatever mm-hmm. occur, then we find that we're like reliving those experiences over and over again. And it feels like, you know, how do we get ourselves out of it? And intellectualizing, oh. you know, analyzing doesn't seem to really be enough, obviously. Obviously, because it's not an intentional or voluntary behavior. Correct. And, he, right. and here's the paradox that we think that triggers are always going to be negative features, but the triggers can be the body feeling safe for a moment, and then the interpretation of that safeness, that body calming down, not as being safe, but being vulnerable. So with people who carry with them severe adversity, you can do things that would work in, let's just term a neurotypical individual, to try to calm them down, and their bodies will become quite accessible for a few seconds or a minute, and then the physiological feedback of that accessibility is now interpreted by higher brain structures 
as vulnerability, and they will then get up and run out of the room. With individuals who are, let's say, carry a diagnosis of PTSD, uh, if they close their eyes and try to do mindfulness meditation, uh, their body may start to calm down, but they can't handle it because that's vulnerability, and they'll try to run out of the room, get out of there. The problem we have is that we live in a deterministic worldview that leads little uh, uh, responsibility or, let's say, portable intervention of the emergent properties of our nervous system. We don't respect what our body can do. So this is where your comment about uh, pharmaceuticals. Well, pharmaceuticals do what they do, but they're based on a cause and effect model, and the answer is that doesn't work for everyone all the time. It may be helpful at times, especially under acute situations, but most of those pharmaceuticals are used for chronic treatment. The issue starts with really having to understand what's going on in your body and also this trajectory of numbness to one's body. So even in your life, I'm sure you could could actually relate to this and saying, well, I used to feel all this these visceral feelings and I had to functionally learn not to respond to them if I want to adapt in the world. Is that it? Does that reflect you in any way? Well, yeah, um, it does. Um, and deterministic, I don't want to go into philosophy because we'll go off on a whole different tangent. But I don't understand. I think you're meaning uh, biological or genetic determinism. I happen to be, just for disclosure purposes, what I guess is called a philosophical determinist. Yeah. So there is cause and effect. But that doesn't mean there isn't change and that current determinants don't matter because, of course, they do. So I try to reconcile those hypotheses well, with, with what you're saying. But I, I do agree most of this stuff is not mm-hmm. intentional. And that's that's where we share the same. OK, well, I, I, I would I won't let you get away with what you said okay? because <laughs> don't, don't. the the issue is we have to be very respectful of what's in between the cause and the effect meaning the organism. And the organism has properties in which it interprets and reacts to those causal features. And that organism, those organismic features are individual differences and they can change across time. And if our body is, in a sense, tuned to have low thresholds to react to threat cues, it's going to be different than when it has a bias to react to safe cues. The same physical stimulus, same context, the same demands will result in a totally different profile of reactivity and we're not well prepared to deal with that potential and the issue is because we don't have a good conceptualization of really what our organism what we as a human living organism what is it that we do it's it's much easier for us to treat ourselves as if we're learning machines Mm -hmm. and you know it doesn't mean we can't learn but there's only certain situations in which we are efficient learners. And those of you who have gone through, let's say, mood shifts or emotional distress while trying to be a student know exactly what I mean. And even if you go back and read Descartes and you start looking at the, you know, the concept of pure reason, Descartes tried to push out passion. That was his language for saying there's no physiology, there's no uh, emergent property of the organism that will can dis- disrupt good thoughts. And I think he's right, but it's a very special case. So the ability not to be influenced by your body and by your passions isn't your normal state. And so even though you could potentially be that way for a while and be very efficient, 
it is not our natural state. And what we've done is kind of believe that it's it's the good state. Therefore, we need to dampen or deaden or numb all that feedback that is disruptive. Meaning we use terms like get over it, don't let right. it bother you, do this, do that, take a Grow a thicker skin, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, tough it out as opposed to resolve it. You know, we treat ourselves horribly. Yes. I'd like to, in a sense, introduce the what I think is the true metaphor of our society. And it goes back to kind of like the Matrix movies. Hmm. I think they got it a, partially right, but partially wrong. The Matrix is threat. We live in a matrix of threat cues, and that defines our who we are. It defines our political views. It defines our religious views, mm. and you know basically it defines our sociality. It is a major disruptor to who we are as a species, and we really haven't come to grips with what it is to be a safe, co-regulated, trusting individual. I'm probably going to be skipping around here because. I am really interested in what you're saying there, especially the idea of which I haven't thought about before or heard anyone else talk about before what happens between the cause and effect. So if we live in and we do live in a very, especially in the last decade, live in a very dangerous, threatening society um, in the Western society, but probably all the world, maybe a lot in this particular country. That's what's happening out there, and that's what's happening, therefore, to us as individuals. And I like how you say that informs. Um, I used to always say the kind of religion we have is based on the kind of society we have. But if the society is being informed by this, these constant threats, then that's going to affect what kind of how we think of religion or how we think yeah. of politics. So that's on a macro scale. What are some when we are looking to to get our humanity back? A lot of the stuff that I know you talked about is how to, and we can talk about this also, how to tune up the vagus nerve and how to do things, which I have questions for here, um, like singing and even um, swallowing and different kinds of movement, yoga. But how do we also simultaneously, if possible, if that's possible, work through this if the external narrative or the external pressures are affecting us every single day without making without having a way to create or alter social norms or whatever we want to call them. Okay, first of all, we have to acknowledge that as a species, we're a traumatized species. I mean, that's who we are. The issue is, do we have to be safe all the time, or do we just need some safe moments? Why are we a traumatized species, just so people understand? Well, we're the, the whole... History of the survival of humans as well as other mammals as well as other species is all about survival. But what is important when we understand our own evolutionary history as mammals, we start seeing this journey towards sociality. Now you see it as I speak when I use the word sociality as a behavior and in a sense evolutionary uh, advantage of being safe with another. When you think of sociality, you often think of it on a behavioral level, and you think of the evolutionary advantages of that. But if you look at the phylogenetic changes in the neural regulation of our autonomic nervous system, meaning the brainstem structures that regulate the organs that support fight-flight or calm us down, you see that there was a major shift in the transition from asocial reptiles to social mammals. 
that enabled us to use sociality as a neuromodulator. Basically, it's a vagal nerve stimulator, our sociality. So before we get lost in the modern technologies of hacking our nervous system and using stimulators or using pills or uh, even surgery or mm-hmm. even doing exercises, understand that the primary neural exercise of calming was through social interactions with others, co-regulation. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do is think of the crying baby and the mother, and you realize you get certain features that can be generalized to the entire society. When a baby is crying, does the mother yell at the baby and say, stop crying? Now, there may be some mothers who do that, but it's not effective. She'll right. use a voice with that's highly uh, prosodic, meaning that it has lots of intonation, melodic. And physiologically, that is a built-in trigger in our nervous system to calm. All mammalian species have a frequency band, or I should say all social mammals have a frequency band in which specific social vocalizations will calm them down. It's based on the physics of their middle ear structures. So when we look at maternal vocalizations and actually the acoustic features, the more prosodic they are within a frequency band that's basically defined by the transfer function of the middle ear structures, a very esoteric thing, but it was something that occurred in that evolutionary trans transition from reptiles to mammals. We had detached middle ear bones, and we're able to process certain acoustic stimulation. But the most interesting thing is the area of the brainstem that controls those muscles and controls our facial expressivity and controls the intonation or vocalization also controls the vagal control of our heart. It, it's our cardioinhibitory calming vagus. So social interactions, facial expressivity, vocalization, singing, chanting, and basically co-regulation or playfulness in our interaction are cues to our nervous system to calm down. They are literally neural exercises of the, of our new mammalian branch of the vagus. Right. So basically, if I am understanding correctly, it's our built-in five senses. Uh, I'm not sure how sight for seeing facial expressions. I know facial expressions have had a, a major well, that's for everybody now that I'm learning this. All my mother had to do was have one or two different facial expressions, and my sister and I knew to get out of the room. Yeah. So if there is that facial expression stuff, which stays with you. And, of course, the, the ear, I didn't understand that as well until this now. And I guess touch as well, because yeah, that's part but, of human. But we don't need to see to hear. And the intonation of people's voices basically right. make them accessible. We connect more with our voice than with facial expressivity. So the voice we, is the most important thing. Well, for many. Now, we, we want to create greater range. Let's say you have neurodiversity and you don't have voice. Then mm-hmm. facial expressions, uh, you compensate. We have fluidity as a nervous system. But we're always trying to signal those that we're interacting with that we're safe to be close to. And this is really the bridge between those reptiles and the asocial reptiles and social mammals. And that is mammals could cooperate because they could vocalize their physiological state. So if your voice had great intonation, it really was representing that there was great vagal control of your heart, meaning you were calm. So our voices tell so much. And if you want to go back to your mother, you could tell from her voice whether she was losing it or not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was really this reflection of her physiology. 
Mm-hmm. And the other part, when you, in a sense, go through your recollection and uh, of your own childhood, a par- if you're a parent and your child, meaning you in this case, is in intensive care and is under uh, this type of medical treatment, it's such a loss of control and fear that your parents suffered severe trauma in the process of you being able to stay alive. And then that goes back to their parents and so on and so forth. So it's, it's passed along. Well, yeah, if you, if you go, because most likely your, your grandparents may have been immigrants or at least one generation off and they came to the country not under, maybe not under the best of circumstances and survival was their, their goal. Mm-hmm. And they conveyed those threats or that lack of certainty. Now, remember, right. our nervous system interprets predictability as safety. Now, go back and think about your grandparents or great-grandparents and their lives and how certain were they of safety and support. Yeah, my grandma came from Poland before mm-hmm. the Nazis, but during the, the Tsarist Russia um, yeah. and, and being Jewish religiously, or they were endlessly persecuted. So she left with her mother there when she was like 15 or 16 to come here and definitely had a certain personality that was very tough edged, didn't show a lot of emotion, didn't yeah. hug, didn't, yeah. you know, was always skeptical and yeah. obviously passed that kind of, of emotional physiology or whatever toward to my mother and therefore then to myself and my sister. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, my mother's family has a similar tradition, but came over earlier, came over the turn of the 20th century. But they came over literally as children pretending to be part of other people's families. So you start seeing this, this, in a sense, survival, really admirable survival, but not with the skill sets that would naturally have emerged coming out of safe families. And we have to be, in a sense, we have to be smart enough to reframe our own history. So it is, it right. says maybe we didn't get what we needed at that time, but we got a lot. We're here and we are intelligent uh, uh, individuals. And so we can, in a sense, have a degree of compassion for what our relatives did in preserving our life. And we can, in a sense, retune ourselves and understand that we are not under the threat that they were under. And it's a real issue of what can be called transgenerational trauma because they bring with their, their own fears and threats and they structure a culture that emerges from those threats. So it becomes a culture that you need to provide. And in the Eastern European immigrant population, it was all about education and being able to have mobility so that you right. could have, uh, you could be secure. I reflect on uh, my, I would say my younger years as adolescent and young adult and where young women's parents would want to know what did my father do? Hmm. Because they were very concerned about whether there would be a support net for their daughters. Now, during that period of time, it was, a, it was the sixties, you know, and I was in a sense found it extremely offensive. Right. But in retrospect, I now understand what they were trying to do. They were caring about their child. But to me, it was offensive because they were not responding to me as an individual with my own potential. But if I were to flip back and I had a daughter in the 60s, I probably would have been doing the same thing. 
as I'm thinking and listening to to you talk to these uh, different generational, multi generational survival techniques, I'm reminded of Dr. Joy DeGruy, who you may or may not be familiar with, who had in the social sciences has come up with an idea called post traumatic slave syndrome, and she's talking about African Americans who come from a history of slavery 400 years and how that has mm-hmm. very much changed their behaviors right up to today, and she tries to talk to to people specifically, um, in her case, anybody, but specifically African Americans of, you know, ancestry of, of slavery and to understand behaviors within communities today. If there was any group of people that had to learn how to survive in this yeah. culture, at least it was that group. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, let's say, information we can gain by reflecting on the heroic nature of survival and how we have transformed who we are based upon this literally innate uh, desire and motivation to stay alive and that we have created variations in our culture that gets reflected in functionally our temperament and how we approach the world. So I think these are good, let's say, intellectual exercises to be able to better understand our own behaviors and the behaviors of those around us. All right. Before we get to a little bit about uh, safe and sound protocol, which I want to talk to you a little bit about, you're mentioning functionality a few times, and we were wondering, you know, how you mentioned the importance of defining everyday words and phrases, such as what is functional and what is successful. And I know if you ask one group of people in the society, successful means, you know, Donald Trump. If you ask another group of society in the society, successful might mean what we're talking about, you know, yeah. healthy connections. So mm-hmm. am I on the right? You're in an interesting area that we can step into without getting to let's use the term disorganized. I was doing a workshop and a, a therapist who was was from a minority group. They said to me, "Why are all people of that minority coming to her for therapy?" And and her basically caveat was they're so successful, meaning they had resources and wealth. Why would they go to her? And of course they went to her because they felt safer in that culture. But my first question to her was, what do you mean successful? And that's my question to you. What do we mean by being successful? And in general, our culture defines success by stuff, whether it's the acquisition of monetary resources In the academic world, it's still stuff. It's grant dollars and publications and citations. So the metric of success through our whole society is really based upon accumulation of stuff. That's all you need in life is a little place for your stuff, you know? I can see it on your table. Everybody's got a little place for their stuff. This is my stuff, that's your stuff, that'll be his stuff over there. That's all you need in life, a little place for your stuff. That's all your house is, a place to keep your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You can see that when you're taking off in an airplane. You look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. All the little piles of stuff. And when you leave your house, you gotta lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. They never bother with that crap you're saving. All they want is the shiny stuff. 
That's what your house is, a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta move, gotta get a bigger house. Why? No room for your stuff anymore. You are listening to the Equal Time for Free Thought podcast. Equal Time is your evidence-based program informed by scientific naturalism, which addresses issues and events of today's world as a means towards building a peaceful, more cooperative, and healthy society. Find us at equaltimeforfreethought.org or on our Facebook page. And now, back to the interview. So the metric of success through our whole society is really based upon accumulation of stuff. And this kind of violates what our bodies really want to feel successful. We want to feel successful when we can, is that my, my description of that was that I can lay on a bed when I'm uh, older and I'm dying and I can smile and wake, wave goodbye with a smile. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us don't even have the thought of having a smile when waving goodbye because we're under such states of threat that we feel we haven't done enough. We haven't accumulated enough. We haven't taken care of enough. Or we haven't done our greatest work yet. Good enough and all that. We're not good enough. We're not comfortable with our opportunities and with our own successes. So this has, to me, been a very interesting journey because I've been in academics so long. And I was always shocked by when people got awards or they got grants or they got publications or let's say they got a uh, certain notoriety that those experiences never were useful in transforming them into being more safe with themselves. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, they didn't use it as feedback to help redefine them and to lose some of this uncertainty about their own success and future. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. All right. We don't have three hours, which we can use easily. Among different ways to heal a traumatized vagus nerve is the safe and sound protocol. What is this protocol? Can you give me maybe an example of it and why does it work? Yeah, well, let's back up a bit because and let's actually uh, unpack what you said, because we don't heal. You see, even Mm. in the phrasing of your question, you really want to fix something that was damaged. That is really your orientation. Can we use this? Can we stimulate the vagus? Can that get rid of the symptoms? And then are we healed? Polyvagal theory really has a different perspective. It says what you're calling distress is really the nervous system in a state of defense. No more, no less. So the healing is not like anything's broken. It's just that we have to throw the switch and get get the defense turned off. And that's the challenge. So the challenge is that when we feel safe, when we're calmer, when we're accessible to other people, we can co-regulate. This accessibility also broadcasts authenticity so that we interact with others and they then start reciprocally interacting with us. And it's, an, it's social nourishment and people feel comfortable with each other. And that's really what the vagal nerve stimulation is supposed to be about. So the question is, how can you enter that? to give people a feeling of what it's like to have their vagus calm them down. For many people, they just don't know what being calm or feeling safe really is. It's potentially very frightening, even to think about it, because it means vulnerability. So the safe and sound protocol was based upon the principles, first of the theory, 
but also of the practical principles of how does a mother calm her baby. Mm-hmm. Okay? And when you start understanding the principles of polyvagal theory and the importance of vocalizations to create cues of safety, meaning broadcasting cues of safety in mammalian species, it starts making a lot of sense. Think about how you talk to a horse or a dog or a cat with this intonation and prosodic voice. We're very, you know, always praising, but as we praise, the voice becomes more melodic. That stern voice, that argumentative uh, style doesn't work with animals. Why should it work with humans? In a sense, we're so poorly informed about what our bodies need. So the mother who has this crying baby instinctively starts using words like, you know, I love you, sweet boy or sweet girl, you know, and starts humming or using a melodic uh, voice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's intuitive. It's in a sense reflexively and intuitive. And when you have a puppy or a kitten, you do the same thing. And interestingly, those other social mammals like horses, dogs and cats, the frequency band that they interpret as cues of safety and social communication is very similar to humans. So we can calm other mammals with our voice, and it, it makes us feel good when they calm down because they're now broadcasting cues of acceptance of us, and we feel even better. Okay, so the safe and sound protocol takes the hints that there are frequencies that our body really uh, uh, desires to calm down, and it takes those frequencies from vocal music and literally amplifies the intonation changes. So in a sense, it's a stealth stimulus in which our, I use the term distilled essence of trust, in which our body just has to open up and become accessible. Now, this works very well with children and many people who have, let's say, minor anxiety. But if you carry with you a history of severe adversity, whether that comes from abuse in the home, abuse in the marriage, or medical traumas, safety, and taking cues of accessibility is the body interprets it first. I'm okay. I open up. I feel safe and calm. But then the feedback, that interoception says, get the hell out of there. Last time I did that, I was injured. And so I retuned that. The system's now retuned not to be a welcoming of that. And this is what happens with people with trauma. So they, their body needs to get used to feeling safe. So the safe and sound protocol, when it was used for children who had auditory hypersensitivities, anxiety disorders, was almost universally effective. When it got started, when we started to use it with people with severe trauma histories, we learned so much about the trauma trajectory and even the recovery trajectory. Basically, it softened the body, made it accessible, but then the feedback was often created cues of threat. And so what the insightful therapist did was they just slowed up the intervention. Rather than doing an hour a day for five days, which was the initial protocol, they did a couple minutes every day or every other day, five or ten minutes, and they linked it to their other interventions, whether they were doing somatically oriented interventions or EMDR. Uh, they were doing their therapies after a few minutes of allowing the body to be calm. 
And physical therapists are now starting to use it, and occupational therapists, uh, actually uh, over a thousand occupational therapists are using it. And, you know, there are now uh, several thousand therapists who are using it, and it was never developed to be a standalone intervention. It was developed to be functionally a state changer, an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator that enabled the individual to feel that physiological state of calmness and then to work from there. So somatic uh, or EMDR, which I know is, is eye movement, or even um, things like dialectical behavioral therapy, yeah. all these things come would be more beneficial if they come after or, using or, the safe and safe or intertwined with it. This is what. So what we're learning, there are people actually. I'm watching this evolve. It's been a really interesting journey. Uh, there are a few hundred somatic experiencing practitioners who are also safe and sound protocol providers. And they developed a series of good practices, how to use it within their practice of somatic experiencing. Similarly, a group of EMDR people have done the same. And so as the cluster of safe and sound providers starts to overlap with these different, I would call them affinity groups of therapy, they're developing uh, from their affinity group a perspective of how to accelerate the treatments that they have been certified in. So I have a slightly different set of questions, but it's related, of course. If we're talking about connections um, and we're talking about safe and security and trust, you know, we're talking about attachment theory to some degree, what Dr. Sue Johnson calls, you know, secure, safe um, attachment bonds. So as opposed to the insecure bonds, whether they be anxiety, avoidant, or what they call disorganized now and this, all these different mm-hmm. terminologies. If the goal, so to speak, is to move from, for people who have been traumatized specifically, but anybody in this culture to some degree, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I actually wrote a chapter in a book on, on attachment that I'm actually a co-editor, but my wife, who's Sue Carter, who's the the scientist who uh, discovered the link between oxytocin and social behavior. She's Mm. the primary editor of this book. And I wrote about uh, social engagement, a preamble to attachment, meaning that if you wanted good attachment to, let's say, a romantic person, a romantic uh, target, or even a friend, it's not a challenge of our literature or, or our language. It's a challenge of whether they feel safe with us in their presence. And basically that this requires stimulating what I call the social engagement system. And those are the muscles of the face and head and the intonation of voice. And that gets linked to our physiology, our vagal regulation of the heart. So when we have a concept of the social engagement system, we understand how sociality functionally stimulates the vagus, becomes a neuromodulator. And we also understand that intonation of voice is really the projection of our vagal tone. If there's uh, melodic features, our vagal tone's good. If the voice becomes thinner, narrow, and screechy, very poor vagal tone. And if our voice becomes booming and yelling, not very good vagal tone either. But it's that melodic features in the middle that tell our body, this is a safe place to be. And what we end up doing in our social relationships is we reduce psychological distance through our social engagement system. This leads to physical proximity. We're not going to be hurt. And that leads to appropriate hugs and physical contact. And just thinking a little bit further about what this attachment theory or understanding this has, how people think about it in at least this country, there's um, an idea of pathologizing our need for connection, branding words such as needy 
as dysfunctional mm. or overusing labels like codependency. Yeah. So you know, these are misunderstandings, obviously, of, of social sciences, of everything that you're describing here. How ought we treat these words? How do we communicate with language barriers? The lack of, of a healthier, more deeper vocabulary to others, if we're trying to help others or just communicate with others about what you're expressing. No. Well, the first thing is your vocabulary is very biased. Towards <laughs> yeah. towards certain behaviors, assuming right. uh, that they're intentional or causal. Uh, the the point is to, in a sense, step back and get a different respect for your body, and that respect comes in understanding your own physiological state and being aware that when you're in certain states, certain behaviors are easy for you, and when you're in other states, other behaviors come out, while certain ones are very difficult to do. So. We are basically so uninformed about our internal physiological state, and we think that everything resides on the surface. So a body under a state of threat that is seeking co-regulation with another is treated as if they are needy mm. or pathetic. You know, we start going into all those terms because they can't take care of themselves. The regular individualism of this society. Yeah, yeah. It's it, yes. And remember, rugged individualism is survival. It's not love. Okay. So mm-hmm. the issue is, is, is survival more dependent on love or on rugged individualism? It's an interesting question because you have to have a certain safety net for love to be the characteristics of your society. And this is part of the problem within our culture as people start experiencing it, especially this has been exacerbated during the pandemic, which was real fear of disease and death. It shifted our physiological state, the isolation. We didn't get enough social nourishment, so we got retuned not to trust and not to in, embrace others, both metaphorically and physically. And this changed who we are. We're much more skeptical and less accepting. And you see this map being mapped out in our political arguments, as opposed to a culture or, let's say, a population that feels safe enough in itself that it can allow uh, diversity of perspective and can be supportive of others that do not agree with you. And the issue is once we're under threat, life becomes proximal. It's whatever happens to me is important. When we physiologically feel safe, we are open, benevolent, and generous. We're a very supportive, generous species. We love to love, literally, because we get nourishment back. We love to care for others. And yet the culture says you better take care of yourself because no one else will. Right. And it it becomes Hobbesian. It becomes, I got mine, now you get yours and too big. Or what I remember from my youth, you know, don't be a fool. Take care of yourself. Those types of terms. But they make sense in a culture in which resources are rare and that generosity doesn't work. But, you know, we have really certain, certain opportunities in our society to right. change what a culture looks like, because we should not be food insecure or housing insecure. But, of course, there's a large segment of the population that is. Right. We need to, in a sense, or health insecure, like Medicare or for all. Now, the issue right. is, why should we always be placed in chronic threat unless our morals are based upon the fact that, in fact, many of them are, that based upon if you're taken care of, why would you do anything? 
And this By again, the idea of laziness. And, yeah, yeah. This doesn't make any sense, especially if you interact with people, especially in my world of academics. People want to create. They want to explore. They want to produce. Mm-hmm. They want to be heard above all, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, we've talked about this uh, on the show many times, this false idea about don't give people more food stamps because they'll become dependent on it. And we don't want that. In the meantime, you know, the way this economic system is structured, where we have such a large gap between the very small group of rich and everybody else, it makes it difficult. It, it creates itself. This, the political landscape yep. is an economic landscape is creating exactly what you're talking about. This insecurity and then feelings of unsafety. It goes back to the question I asked before. We could be doing what Dr. Sue Johnson calls emotional focus therapy or DBT or, or, or mm-hmm. safe and sound protocol. All these things on the individual level. Is that enough to somehow cause a sea change in our overall culture or do we have to do what else has to be done? Because some oh. people have tried some of these things or learned some different aspects of taking care of themselves and reconnecting with people and, and sharing love and sharing vulnerability and being comfortable with being more vulnerable, therefore leading to more safety. But then, you know, they look around us and it becomes very apocalyptic. <laughs> you know, you know, there's, there is, uh, let's say, there's a benefit for aging, for getting older and seeing uh, life through the rearview mirror. And you see cycles and you start seeing what, What's been useful? What is good as opposed to what gets you somewhere? So if we actually in terms of my own life, it is was always about the importance of having a sufficient amount of resource so that I could do what I thought was important. This had to do with in the science and, and, and my own life. Understanding the world for what it is, you need sufficient amount of resource to be to leverage that to be who you are. The world is not creating that safe nest, but you can help create your own safe nest and be exploratory. Meaning, I think the first thing for most of us, and and in fact, virtually everyone in this country has lived through an economic stable period of time in which one didn't have to worry that much whether the currency was going to disappear. So the notion of saving meant you really had your resources. So the issue is one could do certain types of planning or predictability. They would have predictability in their aging. And this is how people bought into retirement systems. But what happened in our culture is most of those retirement systems don't exist anymore. They're now self-funded 401s. And, you know, the world's a little different when you have to take money out of your own pocket and now put it in for the future. So the average net wealth of a family in this country, net worth of a family in this country, is really meager, really meager. Yet there are uh, many, many, I don't know how many thousand now, there, there are many billionaires. It's not as rare as it used to be. And if you start thinking about how much money that is and what you need to live a good life, you know, it's a disproportionate distribution. Right. And those people are being protected by tax laws mm-hmm. and people who are salaried are being ravaged by them. It's it's really an interesting bit where we idolize those who manipulate the system and take away our social net. Yeah, that's that's rather ironic and fairly pathological in itself. And I'm thinking about the people living at or below, which is becoming more prevalent poverty levels. They may not even have, um, even with 
a lot of creativity, the resources or to find enough resources to be able to readjust and still find a modicum of, of safety and security. And I'm not sure, you know, what the, you know, prognosis or, or how do we move away from that? I guess the only thing I keep thinking of all the time is live in the moment and just do the best you can to, for building connections in your life as whatever the society is going to do, it's going to do anyway, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Well, I think the latter part of your statement is the most important and profound as we as a species thrive and survive based on connection. And we basically fail when we violate or disrupt connections. That's because our evolutionary heritage is to connect. It's our sociality. And when we go into defense and try to be protective of ourselves and think that others are not part of who we are, we're in a bad trip. Uh, so so the, the issue is social connection. Now, the problem, of course, so many of us have experienced is that the uh, depth of our social uh, connections have been challenged by the two plus years of relative isolation, especially for uh, my age group. You know, I, I did I was on my first flight last weekend. It was totally exhausting, but I talked at a small meeting and it was really nourishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the issue is I had viewed myself as a social person, but I was really exhausted by the time I got home. Right. And so I almost want to gravitate to isolation and, and self-quarantining, uh, which is what I'm fearful of in terms of our society, where sociality was why we do things. Our nervous system craves it, and it is literally our neuromodulator that keeps us safe and, se- and, and sane. So we have yeah, safe and sane instead of safe uh, and secure. Sane yeah. is a good word. So that's one of the ways that's, I guess, the key way of, mm-hmm. of kind of rebuilding our humanity is just finding these connections as, as often as we can, even though a lot of us, especially extroverts, as an introvert, it didn't hit me quite the same mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I, I am more of a loner, but it still hit me because there were still places I couldn't go to. People didn't connect with face to face and without face to face and hearing and, and, and sight too, and it becomes more difficult. So I don't want to ask this this kind of question, but I tend to ask this as I'm closing with a lot of different uh, guests when we talk about these kinds of things in the so-called state of a society. Do you see hope? Do you see like a Dean Roddenberry-esque, Carl Sagan-esque hope, or are you just not going there and just living oh, in the moment? I, I don't mind going. I'm actually quite optimistic because we are, you know, I said we were a traumatized species, but we are a very adaptive and flexible one. We survive. We're going to survive. That's not the question. The question is, during the survival, do we want to be retuned to survive and basically not be benevolent? Or do we want to be retuned to allow the generosity and benevolence and compassion, which is really part of our neural heritage? And the answer is, in a way, it's up to us if we create structures and institutions that are safe. And the safety is not having teachers carry guns or having metal detectors all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important to get rid of threats, but it's much more important to have cues of safety. So we have to say removing threat is a prerequisite, but it's not enough. And we have done very little in our society 
to provide cues of safety. And, and when you're using the terms we and it's up to us, yeah, you're talking about the general public because we know yeah, we get I'm that not from going the to hierarchy. Say, yeah, yeah, I think it's all of ours. I think the interesting part is really where segments of our society have really, I would say, screwed up. Like mm-hmm. education hasn't been mm-hmm. made a safe environment. They took away lots of the opportunities for social interaction and connectedness with right. the belief that everything had to do with mental tasks and cognition, not with sociality. The other one was medicine, which medicine treated the body as if it was an automobile without a, a compassion of understanding that the internal parts of the body do better when people feel safe. Mm-hmm. So uh, we start seeing that these institutions uh, which are also being driven by bottom line finances, right. left the important component of how do we treat each other as a human being? What does our nervous system need to help us heal, to help us learn, and to help us appropriately interact with others? You know, I would like to say that, well, I don't like to say it, but I sometimes say that hasn't been an accident. But then I also realize what it's affecting us is affecting the people who are creating these, these the lawmakers, the people with the money. They don't maybe see that it's happening to them, too, but everything that happens to us is happening to all of us. And yeah. that that's the mentality people have to, what we hope, I hope, will spread in, throughout the culture. I mean, we have a desire to think that those who are leaders or teachers or spiritual leaders are different than who we are. But Mm -hmm. they're just like us, and they're affected by the same things. And their ability to be compassionate and caring is going to be compromised when they're under threats. So it's kind of like we have to deal with our illusion, our myth about others, and realize that we share with others. Through that connectedness, we'll be better able to inform them what's important to us. Well, that's a great way to wrap up this uh, wonderful interview. Thanks, uh, Stephen Porges, yeah. for being part of Equal Time for Free Thought. It's been fun. Great. Thank you, Barry. It's been fun connecting. Yes. Good term. Thank you. And you have been listening to Equal Time for Free Thought's interview with psychiatrist and neuroscientist Stephen Porges, who introduced to the world the polyvagal theory, the idea that evolutionary neuroscientific and psychological constructs pertaining to the vagus nerve's role in emotion regulation, social connection, and the fear response. Until next time, for Melody Ray, this is Barry Seidman asking you to tune in, pay it forward, and question question everything. everything. Get lost in the ocean Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions Sent up a flare, I need love and devotion Trade it for some faces that I'll never know, notion Maybe I should try to find the old me Take me to the places and the people that know me Trying to just connect, thinking maybe you could show me if there's so many people here, then why am I so lonely? Friends, hard to find, let's face it By the perfect home when there's a flood in the basement Made a couple dollars now and I ain't trying to chase it Kids from Oklahoma, man, we don't waste it I'm just trying to paint the picture for me Something I could give a damn about in maybe 40 years And I've been ready and willing and able to edit the story Cause there's so many people here to be so damn lonely
switching to a new lane Foot to the floor, man, searching for the real thing Need somebody else, sometimes ain't no shame Head to the clouds, ain't It's like, can I get a cup? 